Rework is brought to you by Basecamp. Basecamp is the all-in-one toolkit for working remotely. Right now, you're probably wondering how you'll quickly transition your team to remote work. People are stressed, work feels scattered, projects are slipping, and it's tough to see and manage everything. With Basecamp, everything will be organized in one place. Your team will be working together, even though they're physically apart. You'll be on top of things, and a sense of calm will set in. Learn more and sign up at Basecamp.com. And so everybody created these little unicorn factories, the incubators and the accelerators and venture funds, and they were pushing, pushing, pushing this. And so if you go to any university and you're studying entrepreneurship, often this is what they're teaching you. is like how to make a pitch deck, how to raise money. But that's not reality for most entrepreneurs. And that's a really unhealthy way to sort of build an economy on this one economic model that you know, only works for a very specific type of business. Hello, and welcome to Rework, a podcast about the better way to work and run your business. I'm Sean Hildner. And I'm Waylon Wong. We have a COVID-free episode for you today that was recorded, you know, in the before times. <laughs> I sit down with my old friend, David Sachs. He's a journalist and the author of a new book called The Soul of an Entrepreneur, Work and Life Beyond the Startup Myth. It is out on the day we're releasing this episode, April 21st. And the themes he explores in his book are right in the rework and base camp wheelhouse. Here is my conversation with David. Where I wanted to start this actually is with the epigraph from your dad. Can you read it and then tell me the story behind it? If you lose your job and need to start a business, reading Elon Musk biography isn't going to teach you shit. Michael Sachs. You know, he's always been an entrepreneur. He's always worked for himself, my dad. And I was telling him, you know, it is the difference between sort of the myth of what an entrepreneur is, and that's symbolized by Elon Musk, the singular brilliant individual and inventor who comes along with these radical ideas, take tons of venture capital money and disrupts the world and sort of makes it better and becomes this hero that people worship. And he's like, yeah, that's not what an entrepreneur is. An entrepreneur is someone like me, he's a scrapper, a hustler, you know, someone who goes into business for themselves, anyone who goes into business for themselves. You know, he's like, I, I never understood why all these people are so drawn to this. Like, if you, if you lose your job, you know, reading Elon Musk biography isn't going to teach you shit. And I was like, dad, I'm writing that down. I'm taking that for the book. And you go into this a little bit in the book, but can you talk about the kinds of businesses that your dad ran? And actually, I mean, it traces back even further than that to your grandparents. They ran their own businesses. Who knows what business, you know, my grandparents or my great grandparents ran in the, the shtetls of Eastern Europe in the 19th century. But on my mother's side, you know, they were Jewish immigrants from Germany that were in the tobacco business in Quebec City. And then like many Jews in, in Montreal and New York and other places, they entered the schmata business, the garment business. They were tailors and cutters, and they started their own companies. And my mother's father started a tool company, importing hardware and importing stuff from China and Japan and Korea. You know, we're talking in the 1950s and 60s. And that company's still around today. And my father always kind of knew he was going to be an entrepreneur. He'd worked a lot of places, but he'd started some other businesses when he was in high school and university. And and he started out on his own and sort of started a law firm and found clients, built a practice, had a partner, the partner moved to Florida, did other things and just started investing in some of the deals that he was working on. And that's kind of what he's done. It's it's funny. People always say, what, is your, what does your father do? It's like, 
He's an entrepreneur. He's a businessman. It's not this one defined thing. And it's always been just him, you know, and an assistant or a secretary at times, but it's never grown into this massive company. And yet he's done very well. Um, but even my mother, who, you know, was a travel agent when I was born and then took time off to raise my brother and I, she had a clothing sale with her best friend, Paula, twice a year, they would sell women's clothes, which they got at wholesale prices from friends of theirs and and people in the family in Montreal who had these sort of clothing companies and warehouses. And they would set up mirrors and racks in the basement of our house. And they would invite everybody they knew to come over and, and have, you know, discounted sales, cash only. It came to be this thing. It was like, oh, Julie and Paula's clothing sale. Like, this is something that they did together as friends. It was almost more something that she could do with her best friend than it was this necessity for survival. You know, she wasn't trying to become Donna Karen. I mean, so you grew up with entrepreneurs in your family raising you, basically. Did you feel like you internalized some conceptions of what it meant to be an entrepreneur just based on that upbringing? And then did you kind of bring that into the reporting you did here? Definitely. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. You know, when you grow up in a family of entrepreneurs and and it's around you, it's seen as something that's normal. It's not this exotic thing that only a rare subset of super successful geniuses get to do. It's the everyday. And it always was sort of an expectation of mine that, oh yeah, this is, I could always just do something myself. And so in my own life, you know, I've never really worked for anyone. I've never had a job. You know, when I graduated university, I applied for some jobs in journalism. Nobody would hire me because I had very little to no experience aside from, you know, the, the university newspaper. And, and as someone just said, well, why don't you freelance? And my dad's like, just go and start your thing. Like, don't have to ask permission for someone. I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. And someone's like, just go move somewhere. And so I moved to Argentina, where we met, where we were both journalists, Waylon. We were young cub journalists back in the day. And then as soon as I sold one story, I was like, well, I guess this is what I can do. This is a legitimate thing. That really did form the sort of concept of the book. It was always this thing that was possible. Entrepreneurs were sort of around me and my family and the people that I knew and friends and friends' parents and in the community. And yet the way we were talking about entrepreneurs over the past 15, 20 years was this sort of exalted, romanticized thing. Oh, an entrepreneur is the special class of brilliant innovator. And I was like, hold on, does that mean I'm not an entrepreneur? What, what does that mean for my father and my mother and and my brother who had just started a business and my wife who had just started her own business? Like, do we count as entrepreneurs? And what is the difference between this myth of the grand entrepreneur, the sort of Silicon Valley style myth, and the everyday entrepreneurs that represent, you know, 99% of entrepreneurship out there. What's the disconnect here? Because when a Kardashian makes it to the cover of Forbes is the youngest self-made billionaire ever, like what the hell does that have to do with me or my wife who's who's working on her own coaching business? Like I'd like to make $100,000. Like how can I be 100000 there? You know who the real entrepreneur in the Kardashian family is? It's Kris Jenner's mom, MJ, who for many years ran a children's clothing boutique down in La Jolla. Well, there you go, MJ. Good for you. I feel like my parents have bought my children clothes from that boutique in La Jolla. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, are now, that have now been passed down to many children. 
Going back to where we met as journalists in Argentina, not to make this all about us, but you were there as a freelancer. I was there with an American media company, like a global media company. I was on staff, like with a salary and benefits and all that. You were a wire reporter, right? I was. Yeah, I was a wire reporter. And the reason that's my origin story for my very brief career as a foreign correspondent is because my risk aversion is like so high as to be like through the roof. And so it's like I do not have the kind of risk profile of a journalist who would just plop down somewhere new and try to hack it as a freelancer, which was the case with, I think, most of my journalist friends down there, yourself included. And so I feel like it, it kind of really speaks to something about the risk profile of an entrepreneurial person. And this is something you get into a lot in the book, uh, that question of risk. Do you feel like you internalized some notions about risk or kind of developed a higher risk tolerance as a result of kind of your upbringing and seeing your parents always being on their own? No entrepreneur is guaranteed success. No entrepreneur is guaranteed to grow or to innovate or do anything else. But anyone who becomes an entrepreneur is guaranteed two things, freedom and risk. The freedom to build and work and do things in the way that you can do them because you're the only one in charge of it. And so if you decide to build a company, if you decide to freelance or work on your own, you are completely free in how you do that and what you choose to work on. But that freedom is inseparable from the risk. And the risk is you are no longer guaranteed anything aside from that freedom. And that's financially, obviously, but as well as other things, you know, colleagues and benefits and all those other structures are of the things that a job, which I've heard about, but I've never had, will give you are the opposite of that risk. Every entrepreneur, whether they're doing something part-time like my mother and Paula with their clothing sale that they had twice a year, or whether you're starting a company that, you know, you fully intend will grow to be a massive corporation is going to have thousands of people working for it. You make that choice and you, you accept that freedom, which is what you're going for. And you have to accept the risk that comes with it. And it never goes away. You learn to deal with it. You learn to manage it. You learn to manage your anxieties. But that psychological battle of the entrepreneur and their soul with that risk is the inherent trade-off you have to make for the benefit of the freedom. And I think it's, it's different for different people. The truth is that I was in a privileged position. I came from a family that supported me. I, I was pretty well off. I went to Argentina because I knew I could get four pesos to the dollar. And if I needed to call my parents and they could send me, you know, a thousand bucks to cover rent for two, three months or whatever, like, I was fine. Not everybody has that. And so it's one thing to say, oh, if you really care about it, give it up and do your own thing. There's a reason why so many of the people of that Silicon Valley startup myth are like young white kids who went to Harvard and Stanford. You know, Mark Zuckerberg went to an elite private school. He was okay. He could sort of say, yeah, go and fail and do it. A lot of people are like that. The founders of Warby Parker. I mean, it's like they did an MBA at Stanford. They did an MBA at Harvard. They did an MBA at Wharton. Okay, well, already you're in a top 3% of people. So you've catapulted down to the top 1%. It's not so easy for everyone to take that risk. And so I don't judge people. And, and I completely understand. Someone is like, look, I would love to do this, but I can't. I have a family to support. I don't have that backing. It's a reason why only 10% of people become entrepreneurs, right? Don't, only 10% of people go to work for themselves because that risk is a hard pill to swallow. And I, and I do really like what you just brought up around 
risk being very different depending on who you are, because that's also a thread, obviously, that you follow throughout the book, since you start with the Silicon Valley conception of an entrepreneur, and then you go and look at some other kind of case studies and different kinds of entrepreneurs. And when you compare, let's say, a Mark Zuckerberg type or someone that, you know, a listener wouldn't have heard of, you know, like a young person who's at Stanford trying to start a business, I mean, that person's risk is looking really different than, say, the Syrian family you profile that's opening up a restaurant or, you know, the African-American woman in New Orleans who yeah. starts her own business. You know, it's like for those kinds of folks, like if their enterprise fails, like they could fall into poverty, a young white guy is probably not going to like fall out of the middle class if like right. his app doesn't get yeah. adoption. And 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 so there's this narrative that, that that the Silicon Valley startup myth kind of perpetuates. It's like start something and failure is good and failure will teach you and it you know it's cool to fail and then you'll you'll fail upward, which is easy to say if you are graduating from a university where you know you're pretty much guaranteed a six figure job wherever you land. Then if you you do the startup and it fails, it's seen as this kind of notch on your resume and that'll catapult you into some other opportunity. But for the rest of the entrepreneurs out there, the 99.9% of them, you know, the bank's not going to lend to you again. You've squandered your savings. You've lost your house. Your family is having to move somewhere else. You're dealing with divorce and depression because that risk is putting sort of that real thing on the line. That doesn't deter people from doing it. I mean, the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America is minority women, African-American women, Latina women, you know, other women of color, Asian-American women, and, and Native American women. And for them, you know, no one's giving them venture capital funding. I mean, do you know what percentage of venture capital funding in, I think it was 2018 was the last statistical year, went to women? It was in single digits, right? It's like 2.8%, I think, which is the all-time high. So <laughs> you've come a long way, baby. You know, if you add in people of color, if you add in people who didn't go to one of five universities, that number drops dramatically. For everyone else out there, it's like, okay, I'm not even thinking of it in those terms. I'm just going to go out and start this business because of other reasons. It's an idea I have burning or because I want to do something for my community or I want a lifestyle that fits with the type of work that I want to do. I want to be able to spend more time with my kids. I want to be able to spend more time doing passion. I want to be able to live out my values through my business. There's this deeper notion there than just this narrow version of success. After the break, Waylon talks to David about some of the specific businesses he covers in his book. But first, I thought we'd take a little break and have Lexi, a customer support representative and genuine, incredible human being here at Basecamp, share her tips for working remotely. So I have two tips for working from home. One is fuck structure, and two is lean into hedonism entirely. So I live in New York. I logistically do not have space to have a work from home office. My office is where I also eat dinner and write and read and watch movies. And I want my home to still feel like a home. I don't want it to feel like it's set up to be an office because it's my house. So in terms of structure, I don't like doing things like getting up at a certain time, keeping a certain routine. It just felt like defeating the purpose of the benefits of getting to work from home sometimes. Like I'm a total insomniac. So if I slept like shit the night before... 
why get up at six in the morning, go to the gym, shower and put on clothes? <laughs> like, no, I'm going to sleep super late and have better rest and then wake up right before my shift starts. And that works for me. I am ordinarily a very structured, organized person. I really thrive on rules and boundaries. So this took me a really long time to figure out about myself and working from home. And it's very different from the rest of my life and personality. But yeah, fuck structure. It's not going to work for some people. And that's okay. Don't feel bad if all the tips you see about working from home are just not working for you because everybody's different. And in terms of the hedonism, I just love like eating when I'm hungry and then listening to music when I want to listen to music, turning everything into focus mode or airplane mode when I want silence. I mean, that's the luxury of getting to work from home is that you kind of get to run the show. So I just eat when I want to eat and then I use my lunch break to like watch a TV show or exercise or do whatever else. And that just works for me. So be free, friends. Be free. If you would like to share any of your tips and tricks for working from home, you can give us a call and leave a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Or even better, you can record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. And now back to Wayland's conversation with David Sachs. For the lifestyle business, you profile a woman who opens a bakery out in um, Rockaway Beach in New York. And, you know, you look at someone who runs an ESOP and like an employee owned company as an example of a values based business. You kind of take us on a wild ride with this family business, this winery in, um, in Argentina. Of all of these different businesses that you kind of zoomed in on as your kind of examples of each of these categories, was there one in particular that really surprised you, like in terms of what you learned from that person or the conception of entrepreneurship you started out with, like the question of entrepreneurship you started out with when you started talking to that person and then kind of where you ended up on the other side? I think it was the chapter about values, which I I, I had a hard time finding the right company or person to profile. You know, everyone was like, oh, you should talk to my friend. They have a company. They make yoga mats out of recycled water bottles or they make water bottles out of recycled yoga mats and they raise this money on Kickstarter and they give one yoga mat for every one they raise to blind children in Africa. Always just Africa. It's not a specific country in Africa. It's just Africa as a place. Like they heard it from Bono for the first time. And I was like, no, I want to focus on like the opposite of that. The ones I spoke to and I focused on companies that were, as you mentioned, ESOP, they essentially sell the company to their employees for less money than they would get selling it to outside investors, to competitors, to private equity. And they do it out of just a deep sense of, I built this company or I bought this company, I've built it up. I'm the owner, I'm the entrepreneur, but all the people who are here on the shop floor, the people in the office, the assistants, the secretaries, the guys who are out there welding things, I I couldn't have done this without them. And I want them to have a bit of that freedom. And and I'm going to sell them a bit of that risk, right? They're going to become owners in this collective sort of way. And what was interesting was, you know, some of these guys were Republican. Some of these guys were Democrats. Some of them were like socialists. Some of them were like evangelical Christians. I mean, I went into one, it was like a cement company office outside of Philly. So in like the suburbs of New Jersey, just across the river, there was stacks of Bibles that they were like giving out to people. Everything was Bible quotes everywhere. Okay. This is the furthest thing from a Ben and Jerry's sort of idea or Tom's shoes. And yet, you know, when these, when these men were talking about the act of doing this and what it meant to them to be an entrepreneur, to sort of take this action, 
every one of them teared up. I mean, I, I was sitting there with these 60, 70 year old rolled up the sleeves businessmen that looked like they were out of a Norman Rockwell painting. And they were all crying about this action and what it sort of meant to them. You know, we think of entrepreneurship and we see it so often in these conferences and slogans and articles that glorifies it. And it's this cool, sexy thing. And yet it's such an inherently personal, emotional journey, like more than anything economic, it's really an internal transformation that people do and they feel it so deeply. And again, that's the type of thing that, you know, the glossy articles and profiles don't really touch on. This discussion of values is really interesting to me because I feel like what you described, your experience of trying to find someone to profile that's a values-based business and then just getting all these leads on like companies making like, you know, yoga mats out of water bottles and stuff. It shows kind of like how values as a concept has just been like co-opted, I think, by like a certain subset of entrepreneurs to mean something, to mean this kind of like bland do-gooderism. Heropreneurship is is the word that there's a, a woman, an academic I interviewed called Daniela Pappy Thornton, and she coined that phrase, uh, which is the heroic social entrepreneur. And it's become a thing. It's like, oh, you want to be an entrepreneur that does good? You're a social entrepreneur, and you're going to start a company whose main purpose is to do good, and you're going to do good not through charity, but through entrepreneurship. And we're going to celebrate you and put you on these magazines, and you're going to go speak in these panels at these conferences. But there are tons of entrepreneurs out there who are sponsoring little league teams and just treating their people right and doing something that fits with their values, whatever those values may be, that doesn't fit into that neat mold. It isn't sexy, but that's the sort of deeper reality. Right. And I mean, the kind of like endless pursuit of wealth and self-enrichment at the expense of everything else is also a value, but no one talks about that as a value. For sure. And that is, I think, the standard assumption that so much of entrepreneurial rhetoric fits around and a lot of the Silicon Valley myth perpetuates, right? That Ayn Randian, you know, zero sum game. When you go on Entrepreneur Magazine or Inc. and it's like, what are the five books every entrepreneur should read? It's like Steve Jobs and Ayn Rand. It's like, my God, we're going to build a generation of psychopaths. And it's this idea of like, you're an entrepreneur and just by building something, you've done great. Values are cheap. And every company I talked to had their values and, you know, often they were like printed on the wall. Oh, courage, determination, customer's always right, you know, grit, blah, 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 blah. The reason I had such a hard part finding a company for that and an entrepreneur for that part of the book, that chapter was, I would say, okay, well, great. Like, so how do you put those values into practice? Like, how does it actually change day to day? What are times when you've made difficult decisions and you had to defer to the values and that might've cost you, that might've cost the company. And it was really hard for people to say that, right? Uh, that's why the employee ownership thing was such a concrete example. It's like, well, I could have sold this company for $20 million to a private equity company, but instead I sold it to 10 for the employees. It's still a lot of money, but you know, not a lot of people would leave $10 million on the table. As an employee, you really are limited in how you're able to put those values into practice. As an entrepreneur, you still have that freedom. The difference is it gets tested. And it's not so much that it gets tested, oh, times are tough, we have to cut back, we can't afford this charitable program or whatever. It's almost tested more when things are good, when there's that temptation to go public, to take the next round of funding, to sort of grow in ways that may not be in line with the values. 
You've written a few books. This is is just your third or your fourth? Fourth. Fourth. Okay. And so you know you you wrote a book about the Jewish deli, and you wrote a book about. I like the um, way you said that. By the way, that was very Jewish. Uh, <laughs> the Jewish deli. <laughs> Unintentional. Um, and you and you wrote a book about analog based businesses and analog kind of objects and their renaissance. Do you feel like you had to? write and research those first two books to get to this book? Like, do you see your books as all being in dialogue with each other? And this is kind of the book that grew out of your previous two projects. I've always written about entrepreneurs. I've always been interested in entrepreneurs. I never wrote about big companies like you did. And I think, you know, what brought me to this book was thinking about those people and thinking about myself and my family in contrast to sort of what I was seeing out there in the culture, which was like, like I talked about at the beginning of the book, like walking into the airport one day in Montreal when I was going to catch a flight and seeing the cover of Maxim and there's Heidi Klum, you know, topless and over top of her breast is written like Heidi Klum, intimidable entrepreneur. It's like, what, <laughs> what is going on? Like, what is this gap between this sort of celebrity status of someone like Elon Musk and the sort of veneration of entrepreneurship as this golden godlike Phoenix thing? And all these other people that I was writing about who had food trucks and delis and record stores and publishing companies and businesses that were so inherently personal to them. And some of them had grown to have like $100 million in revenue. They were like big companies. And yet it didn't fit into that. It, nobody, None of those guys were posing topless on the cover of magazines. And thank God for that, especially the Jewish deli owners. It was that disconnect of like, this is a thing that I've been dancing around for the past decade plus that I've been a journalist. And I've always been interested in it and always been drawn to it. And like, is it time to tackle this head on? Because the culture seems to be interested in it, but I feel like I'm only getting part of the story. Rework is produced by Waylon Wong and me, Sean Hildner. Music for the show is by Clipart. Special thanks this week to Rosalind Kafour. You can find David on Twitter at SaxDavid. That's S-A-X. His website is saxdavid.com. The Soul of an Entrepreneur is out right now. And if your local independent bookstore is still open for business and shipping, please consider ordering it from them. You can also find David's book at bookshop.org, a website that supports independent bookstores. Show notes for this episode and every episode are at rework.fm. We're on Twitter at Rework Podcast, and we're still collecting your work-from-home stories. Record a voice memo and send it to us at hello at rework.fm or leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Rework is brought to you by Basecamp. Basecamp is the all-in-one toolkit for working remotely. Because of COVID-19, your company is likely scrambling to figure out how to transition to remote work. It may feel daunting, but Basecamp is here to help. We built Basecamp to run our entire company, and we've been working remotely for 20 years. We know what it takes, we do it every day, and we built those learnings into Basecamp. Check it out for yourself at Basecamp.com.